This morning, uh, Chris is shooting a wedding. He's doing wedding photography today. And so Matt Satterfield, who directs our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, is going to come and speak. And Celebrate Recovery is a support system. Yeah, love we can't stop in church, so it's good. It's good. Now, Matt's going to be speaking to us today and sharing uh, the word. So, Matt, welcome, brother. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? I am Matt Satterfield, um, as I like to greet myself um, on uh, evenings in Celebrate Recovery. I'm a lover and believer of Jesus, finding victory over sexual addiction. Hey, guys. Um, so, real, man, it's so good to see so many of my people here. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, John. One of my people. Um, okay, so uh, I want to throw out a shameless plug for Celebrate Recovery real quick, and maybe even a little state of the union for, for our program. Um, we've been having some good meetings, and you guys are missing out. Um, let me just say, last Thursday we had, what, 20 people, which is back up to what we had pre-COVID um, days. So we're, God's doing stuff, and we're starting to see people coming more often we have um, you know, regular people calling and asking, emailing about what's going on with Silver Recovery here at our church. It's a recovery program, 12-step program, that focuses on Christ as our higher power. Okay? Now, what a lot of people think of when they think 12-step program is a, hey, it's for people who have uh, alcohol addiction or drug addiction or whatever. Those mainline addictions, right? Well, I want to tell you that a lot of the people coming don't come for that stuff. We come for those little niggling things that we struggle with, struggle with on a regular basis, that those things that drive wedges between us and God. And this is a process that we use to be able to remove those wedges and start finding, um, finding it easier to interact with God, finding it easier to interact with others, living in peace and wholeness. So uh, I'd love for you guys to come and join us on a Thursday if you have an opportunity. Um, as we grow on Thursday nights, we're going to need help. And uh, I would love to see an opportunity for anyone who is available. I'd like to have uh, some people to be able to help us with kids. Fortunately, we haven't had very many coming on a regular basis, but it's been one of those anxious things for me. And so if there's a way that you are interested, have time available, that maybe you could do once or twice a month, let me know. I'd really love to um, have you join us and, and be a part of that. I'm going to pray real quick before we get started. Father, we just thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Father of lights and you give all good things to those who love you are called according to your purpose. Lord, we just bless you today. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself through your word. We humbly offer our lives to you in service of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as some of you already know, I'm a huge nerd. Yeah, I am. So, okay, what I mean by that, like, I really enjoy 
anything having to do with fantasy in particular, um, whether it be novels or movies, uh, different games. So I just, you know, precedent and expectations aside here, I'm going to let you know I am not going to be quoting C.S. Lewis this morning. <laughs> However, I do want to take a page from his book, pun intended. Uh, just to do something a little different that we don't normally do uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, something that is definitely much, very much in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to tell you a little story, okay? And I would love it if you put on your imagination cap right now and take a second to uh, just lean into this story with me, okay? Imagine yourself there. Picture with me a mountainous countryside. There's a forest at the foot of one mountain, the wind carrying clouds over its snow-capped peaks. It's a brisk late winter, early spring morning, the sun just having come up. Amongst the clearing in the forest is a small cabin, nestled just off the main road, smoke billing from its ch chimney. Inside, the lone resident sits in his recently acquired chair next to his fireplace, sipping on coffee and writing in a book. The house smells of leather, cedar smoke, and something cooking in the cast iron hung over the fire, probably bacon. The man has a dark complexion like he works under the sun. Dark hair and a full beard. He has strong, calloused hands. He seems to be mumbling something to himself, closing his eyes occasionally, and then continuing to look to the book and writing his thoughts. This peaceful moment, this comfortable moment, is suddenly interrupted by several footsteps just outside the door, followed by a loud knock. Jarred from his meditation, the man puts his things aside and walks to the door, unlatches it, and pulls it open. Standing outside are several soldiers dressed in the king's armor, furs for warmth, armed with shield, spear, and sheathed sword. One steps forward at his opening and simply says, Marcus Tanner, the king requires your service. At that point, so many things race through Marcus's mind all at once. This home, his home, the one he just finished just a few years prior, in which he's staking his claim, the place he had hopes of building onto, raising a family, and living out his days within. His project to build the tanning shed, his vocation, and was tanning after all, was nearly finished. He had worked hard as a boy, later apprentice to his father, and had moved to this new territory with hopes of applying his trade in an area teeming with life, wildlife and trappers who would bring him steady stream of work and good good fortune. 
After the shed was completed, he wanted to build a fence, a small barn, so that he could keep a cow, maybe some livestock over time. All of this he had in mind because he hoped to propose to Yesna, a young lady who lived in town, whom he had made fast friends with since moving here. He had written little notes to her, expressing his feelings and dreams, and he was surprised to find that she reciprocated. Also, as he stared into the stoic soldier's face, his writing, his passion, his joy, began to cause a a lump in his throat. You see, Marcus had been given a gift from his father, the gift to learn how to read and write, which wasn't very common. He loved to write, and he hoped to someday publish his poems and stories, if all went well. His father had seen it in him and encouraged his dream and had spent a great deal of his hard-earned money so that Marcus could be taught. His father had passed away. And with that, it had pushed him out the door to find his place in the world while his brothers continued the family business. He missed his father. Wiping the tear that had suddenly started trickling down his throat, a different emotion began to take hold. You see, this king had been waging wars over the last number of years to root out troublesome neighbors, secure valuable resources, and establish an opportunity for peace and prosperity for his people. All well and good. Many believed in his efforts. And Marcus had in fact used some of his inheritance to buy a war bond, which he had hopes it would help him down the road as he tried to expand either his business or his home. Anger began to burn in him at the thought of being cheated out of his investment, knowing that he very well could perish in the service of his king. This king, whom he had trusted, would cheat him out of the life that he was making for himself. All his prospects, a home, a wife, a family, financial possibility, and the opportunity to explore his passion of writing and to honor his father's memory. All were within his grasp. Now it could all be thrown away. His home, which he had built, could be absconded with by some troglodyte squatter or even simply fall into disrepair. Yesna could end up with some troll of a man who wouldn't understand her imagination. No children to pour into as his father had poured into him, and no likelihood of his writing ever being expressed, as there would be likely no time to be, or place to do that as a soldier. What would you do? If you were put in his shoes, or boots maybe, would you go willingly Or would you find some way, some excuse to get out of it? Surely there's some loophole, right? Why should I sacrifice all that I've worked for, all that I've toiled over, just as the possibility to lose everything 
It's not fair. My world would be tossed on its head irreversibly. I would literally have to forsake every possible thing that I had ever considered valuable. Why? Are we not put in Marcus's position every day? Am I so concerned about my prospects? Am I caught up in my own desires? My own goals for my life? Some of us literally feel as though we must scrape and claw over people and obstacles in order to achieve what we think is most important. It's all up to us and what we can make for ourselves. And at the end of the day, what really matters is what I have built with my own two hands. Or is it? At this point, Marcus is panicked. His mind going 100 miles an hour. He thinks of ways he can negotiate his service in some way. What if he could provide some portion of his business as tribute to make supplies for the king's army? What if he could make armor and clothing? Ooh, quivers, shield, sheaths, uh, saddles, anything to be able to stay where he is and have a chance at not leaving everything. But the king's call is final. What choice does he really have? Would it be to his detriment to refuse, to disobey his king? These, the consequences actually would be severe. He might be able to run from his, this new reality, but it would surely mean losing everything anyways. He finds himself now hemmed in. He must either give all or have all taken away from him. All right, let's step out of the story for a second and contemplate uh, perhaps a similar story that Jesus taught us. Uh, in Luke 14, 25 through 33, I think we have it up on the screen, perhaps. Yeah. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliver, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So let's consider what Jesus is saying here for a second. Um, he uses two examples to describe what I'll call the cost of discipleship. First, an engineer. 
It must evaluate the expenses involved in a building project, right? Who would actually start construction without ensuring that they have the money to finish the project according to the expectations? It just doesn't make sense, right? I mean, now, we all have done different projects at times. I did a, a little project uh, working on um, redoing our, uh, tiling in our shower, in our bathroom. And uh, I don't know how many times I had to go back and forth between Home Depot and Home just to kind of get those things that I keep forgetting, right? You know, so there is a, a, a point of which you have to factor in those unknowns, right? But really, we, we have to figure out those things. We have to have those things in mind going into it. Uh, uh, the other example that Jesus gave us, what, what military leader in their right mind would go up against the more formidable force without ensuring that he has the numerical or perhaps strategic advantage uh, to have a solid chance of success? We're not talking about defending here. It actually says going out to war. So he's trying to pick a fight. No one does that without realizing whether they have a chance to win the battle. And then Jesus sums it all up for us by saying, you can't be my disciple unless you disregard all. And I mean all. He listed everybody. And follow him. See, I can see Jesus, perhaps a little exasperated or fatigued at the time, but getting serious for a moment and saying, listen, you need to count the cost because I'm not going to settle for less than 100%. Let's uh, look at another scripture. Um, Matthew 19 23 through 30. Now, this is right after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. You remember that story. The guy comes up, and he's all decked out. And he says, I've done a great job at life. I want to be in eternity with you forever. What do you say? What do I got to do? And Jesus says, well, have you obeyed the commandments? Yeah, I have. I'm good. And then he says, okay, well, you know what? Sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he couldn't do it, could he? He walked off, dejected. And then Jesus, we'll pick up in 23, as Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter, being Peter, right? Said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me also will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is for us. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or child, children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So as in the previous parable, Jesus is trying to say he requires our fullest attention. The rich young ruler was torn between the desire to follow Jesus and retain all his possessions. I'm reminded of Matthew 6.24, we can't serve two masters. That's basically what Jesus is saying. We're not made that way. We can only focus on one at a time, right? On one side of the coin, he's helping us to realize our nature is to focus on or worship one thing at a time. On the other side, he wants us to understand our brokenness often leads us to disjointed and distracted attention to various other things. Jesus wants us to become single-minded in our attention to him. Marcus is thrown into turmoil because his choice is to either put his faith and trust in the will of his king or to trust what he can accomplish on his own with his desires and his goals to keep what he wants, what he has. He really has no clue what service his king would ask of him. Yet he assumes it to be a soldier. Maybe simply because life pushes one into a pessimistic mindset. We tend to presume the worst. But what, the, it, what if the king has some need for a craftsman to work on some special project? What if the king saw some of Marcus's work? The soldier didn't say what kind of service, did he? He wouldn't know what might lie before him if he doesn't obey and answer the call of his king. The alternative may be easier to see or predict in his mind what life he might have. He would certainly have some control of its outcome, right? Let's go back to some scripture for a little more perspective. God's had me in Ecclesiastes recently, and it's totally kicked my butt. I want to read this to you. It's Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So just a couple observations about this scripture. First thing that really jumped out at me is the term nothing better. I want to read that real quick again. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. That's like, that's the 
the ceiling. That's as far as you're going to get. It seems pretty low, don't you think? Secondly, secondly, it, it's only by the hand of God that we can eat, drink, work, live an enjoyable life. Not only did he create us, but he designed us and the world around us to be made, to be enjoyed. He said that at the end of each day of creation, that he, what he had done was good. That includes you and me. Do you believe that? That always throws me for a loop. God thinks I'm cool. I matter to him. Ask yourself if that's something that you believe. That's pretty important, believe it or not. Lastly, with our eyes on him, we may find this fulfillment. It says, the person who pleases God. In other words, with him, our lives can have meaning and satisfaction. However, all our efforts will be completely meaningless if we do not seek to please God in all we do. And according to the Westminster Catechism, this is the chief end of man. That is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So another passage that I absolutely adore, I want to read to you, and that's Psalm 16, 5 through 11. And hopefully I make it through. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Then for my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All right, so let me get to the point here. Jesus says, I must leave all that I know behind and follow him. I can't serve two masters. All these other things are insignificant in terms of their ability to sustain and fulfill me. If I seek him first in all I do, I will find that life is satisfying as I meet my chief goal as God's creation. So, like Marcus, I'm given a decision to make. Hmm. Is my will, how I want to live my life, so important to me that I'm willing to ignore Jesus' call? His promises. Or do I accept surrender and lay down my prospects, my goals, my dreams, the way I want to live in favor of the way of obedience and see what he has in store for me. In Celebrate Recovery, we follow eight principles 
and 12 steps that are Christ-centered lampposts that focus us on the right path of wholeness. Lampposts. I could twist that into being Silas Lewis, right? Okay. Call it that. Initially, we must realize how powerlessness, how powerless uh, we are to stop making poor decisions, okay? It's called insanity. We do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But we're powerless. And then we come to believe that there is a God who cares about us and has the power to change us. One of the major turning points for, these, for those seeking help with their struggles in celibate recovery are principles three and step three, which I would like to read to you now. Principle three, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Matthew 5, 5 says, happy are the meek. Step three says we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Romans 12, 1 says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And I, I want to go on and read verse 2 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, we have found that recovery doesn't really get off the ground unless we make the conscious decision to stop following our own destructive path and start seeking and following God's will. These steps really came alive for me recently uh, as I've been starting to teach the, the lessons every Thursday night. I began to ask myself, how am I actively turning from my will and seeking to know and obey His? And I'll be honest with you, my answer was rather unsettling. I'm just not. I consistently follow my own path, allowing myself to coast through life with whatever flavor of the month suits me. My habitual behaviors inhibit me from connecting with him on anything other than a surface level and get caught up in all the good things he's made other than fixing my attention on him. As he contemplates his decision, Marcus can't see his future clearly because he does not know his king. Rather, he only knows fear. He believes and hopes his king is a good man and wants the best for his subjects. But he has never met the king. And that leaves doubt rather than joy. Fear rather than hope. Anxiety rather than peace, doubt instead of trust. All he sees is what he will leave behind. Marcus fails to see, what Marcus fails to see is how his king is pursuing him 
seeking him, calling him to a life that is fulfilled through honorable service and passionate devotion. But will we actually ever know what adventure his king has for him unless he forsakes what he knows? Let's say you and I make a decision to turn our life and our will over to his care and control. I mean, really allow the Holy Spirit to sift us through his filter and see what he has in store for our lives. What would he call us to leave behind? How would we know what he wants us to do? How would we know how he wants us to live? I want to read also to you principle seven of our Celebrate Recovery program. And that is reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. Sounds simple. I'm convinced that those who choose to leave all and follow him will consider everything else worth less. To know him and understand his will becomes paramount. There is nothing more important. Would we not seek to find him in every experience? Would we not desire to speak with him at all times? Wouldn't we yearn for another taste of the bread of life? To drink of the living water? Praise God, he knows we are weak and frail. He knows we struggle to remain consistent in our pursuit of him. And we can rest in his grace as, he, as we pursue him. But we cannot be complacent. We have to reserve to prioritize our time with him. We must search for him in scripture. Prayerfully listen for his voice and look for the windows of the soul that will allow us to see and experience him more. We need the encouragement and the accountability of brothers and sisters who are also following after him. We don't know how Marcus Tanner will respond to the will of his king. He may resign himself and go. He may push back and try to stubbornly hold on to his grasp of what he has. He will either obey and see what his king is in store, or he will likely come into opposition to the king and end up with even a less desirable situation. For you and I, is our choice much different? We either live in his will or in opposition to it. Let me say that again. We either live in his will or in opposition to it. Because I am a human, broken and dysfunctional due to sin, I will constantly be fighting against my selfish desire, desires that wage war against the will of my king. But this is a battle worth fighting. Why? Because he fought for you and me. 
He took up his cross, endured humiliation and suffering so that we could have a way to relate to him. He made a way for you and me to be holy so that he could dwell by his spirit in us. He made it possible for us to hear his voice, know his will, and be empowered to do it. And that is the adventure he wants for us, not some grasping for that which does not last. The reality is all we all live in this moment that Marcus Tanner is faced with. This moment of decision. Do we know and trust our king? Do we live, do, I'm sorry, do we believe that he is good and his plan will lead to true joy and satisfaction? Are we willing to let go of the small fulfillment we have from trying to make it on our own in favor of his higher purpose? Or does it instill in us, like it did Marcus, a sense of anxiety or panic to let go and place our lives into his hands? Perhaps we think we can have both and try to negotiate with God. I'll give you Sunday mornings, maybe even read my Bible occasionally, if I remember. Just like Marcus's king, Jesus won't accept anything less than 100%. He knows our brokenness, so there's grace. However, he wants our ears to be listening and our eyes to be watching for him. He desires our attention so that we can have a relationship with him and enjoy the adventure of following him. I would like to share one small example that happened to me recently, and then we'll close. I had a spat with a coworker. Um, I work up at Costco. And um, it was one of those things where, I mean, I was mad. I was so mad, lost my religion. But, you know, after thinking this through, I remember I got into that shower, the one that we had uh, done the work on, um, and, and was praying, and God told me something so clearly. He said, humble yourself. Are you kidding? What are you, what are you talking about? No, I'm not. What are you? So I fought with him for a while, praying in the shower. Yep, I do that sometimes. Um, but it was absolutely clear. I had no doubt of that. So I went and I, God gave me an opportunity to say something. He's, and, I, and I apologized from, from my part of this. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I, I didn't understand. And you know what's interesting that person revealed to me something that I couldn't have possibly understood, couldn't possibly have known the predicament that they were in. And all of a sudden it made a lot of sense why God wanted me to humble myself. 
to be able to share his compassion with them. God has an opportunity for us to be able to open doors in people's hearts if we'll but humble ourselves, if we'll but join him in this adventure that he has for us. But we'll never know unless we are listening for his voice and we are seeking to obey him in those things. Otherwise, we're just doing life on our own. And you'll miss out on what God has in store. So before we take communion, let's pray. King of heaven and earth, Lord Jesus, we confess to you today that we have fallen in love with our own will and have busied ourselves with achieving our desires and goals. However, in the light of Scripture, we believe that your will is higher. It's not, not only better than ours, but it will surely lead us on an amazing adventure worth living. We choose to disregard the things that have become precious to us and perhaps have caused our affections to stray. We take up our cross as you did, Lord Jesus, and worship you with our lives. We proclaim you to be our treasure, most precious to us, and we seek to know you more. Help us not to forget you, but make you the priority in everything we do. Not our will, but yours, O oh Lord. We live to worship and serve you, our Lord and our King. Amen.